0: about in the middle, maybe a little bit to the left of middle, and Psalm 2, right there at the beginning. I'm going to read Psalm 2 as we uh, begin our time together in God's Word. So I'd like you to follow along in your copies of the Scripture as we read this uh, passage together. Psalm chapter 2. This is what the Scripture says. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss His Son or He will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for His wrath can flare up at a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him." During this uh, period of time between which we are, we usually look at normally uh, larger books of the Bible, we have been spending some time thinking about what it means to be uh, a member of a local congregation. We're thinking about the issue of belonging. And during this time, there have been several weeks in which I have wanted to, in order to show you how relevant this issue is, there's been times that I have wanted to make reference to the presidential campaign. Uh, Until now, I have refrained. One of the elders wisely told me a few weeks ago that I should refrain because it would be too distracting and probably a little disturbing. So uh, I have refrained until now. But last weekend, there was an exchange that took place that just touches on the topic that is before us today that I'm going to wade into the news. I wonder if you remember the uh, conversation that took place between Pope Francis and Donald Trump. Well, uh, both of them have taken opportunities at times to modify the statements that they made a little bit. But I want to start where they did. Pope Francis was in Mexico, and he was talking about the wall that uh, Donald Trump has proposed building along the U.S.-Mexico border. And here's what he said. A person who thinks only about building walls wherever they may be and not building bridges is not Christian. This is not the gospel. Uh, Donald Trump, he's been outspoken about his Christian faith recently. I don't know if you saw this, but he told Pat Robertson that he reads the Bible more than anyone else. Um Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump said No leader, especially a religious leader, should have the right to question another man's religion or faith. Now, I don't have a position, I'm not taking a position this morning on immigration, I'm not endorsing or unendorsing anybody for president, but both of these men made theological statements while they were talking about these issues. Statements about the nature of following Jesus, statements about... Who has the authority to declare whether or not someone is a Christian? And I have all kinds of questions based on what they said here, this interchange. Uh, One, does the Pope have the authority to declare that a person is not a Christian? And can he do it on the basis of their position on whether or not a wall should be built along a border? Is that a valid reason for declaring whether someone is a Christian or not? Um, the Pope probably doesn't have the authority to declare that you're not a Christian in a news conference. That's where he said that's probably not there. But does he have the authority to declare you're not a Christian when he speaks ex cathedra from the throne of his chair in Rome as an official leader of the Catholic Church? Does he have that authority? Hmm. I think what he meant to say, Pope Francis, what he meant to say is that he thinks that building a wall is unchrist-like behavior. It's not... Christian-like behavior. But does he even have the authority to make an official declaration about that? Hmm. Now, what about Donald Trump and what he said about how no religious leader should have the right to question another man's religion or faith? Actually, that is a very popular statement it's a it's a theological statement and it's very very popular most people agree with donald trump about this that nobody ought to have a right at all to make any sort of statement about someone else's religious beliefs or faith that that idea the popularity of that idea is why church membership seems so foreign why it's so out of tune with the song that we sing so much in our culture you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the man who became, recently became the spokesman, the lobbyist for the Secular Coalition of America. He's a former Baptist, and, and he was talking about his own faith. And he said in an in interview, he said, my faith is a private matter, which means you have no right to question or challenge or object to what I believe at all because no one has the right to challenge or question someone's private faith. Now, that is a very popular view. I'm not sure it accords very well with what Jesus said, though. One presumes that if any religious leader has a right to question another person's faith, it would be Jesus. Uh, Jesus, in fact, he gave his church authority to bind and loose He told us to do this. He said, take the authority that I'm giving you, and you are to, with it, on the profession of faith in him, welcome believers into the church. There is nothing private about following Jesus. It's personal, but it's not private, and there's a difference. And then Jesus told us that if someone professes to follow him, and they refused to repent, then Jesus said we're supposed to exclude them from the congregation. Not angrily, not vainly, not arrogantly, not out of vengeance, but we're supposed to loose them, exclude them from the congregation. Who has the authority to speak for Jesus? And how far does that authority extend? So two very important questions. I think that both of these questions are inextricably linked with what you believe the church is. They're both issues having to do with belonging. This morning we're going to come to the second part of a discussion that we started last week. We're going to talk about authority again today, but this morning our emphasis is going to be on the limits of a church's authority. You remember what Hebrews 13, 17 says. We read this last week. Do you remember this? Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Now, how far does this word submit here extend? Can a church or an elder tell you what to eat or what to wear or whom to marry and when? Uh, What controls does a church have over your job, your time, your money? What would happen if our church, we got together, we had a vote, and we voted that every member of our congregation has to give a certain amount of money to the church? Would that be binding on you? Would you be sinning if you didn't follow that resolution? Hmm. These are important questions because when a church tries to exercise too much authority, it risks becoming cultish, not necessarily in doctrine, but in practice. There have been religious leaders who have tried to answer all those questions by saying, yes, I can tell you what to eat and what to wear and when to, whom to marry and when. And There's, there's been church religious leaders who have made those claims. If we don't exercise enough authority, though, we um, fail in our duty to represent Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do this morning, we're talking about three things. We're going to move in three different directions. First, we're going to talk about Jesus and his authority. What sort of authority does he have? This is going to be a little review for us, I think, from some of the things we talked about last week. And the reason I want to talk about it is because, oh, brothers and sisters, it will give us a chance as a congregation to rejoice in the greatness and the supremacy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The second thing that I want to talk about is we're going to talk about the authority that Jesus gives. And for just a minute, I want to talk about um, the relationship between elders and the congregation. We'll do that for just a few minutes. And then third, we're going to be more specific and maybe more systematic about the limits of a church's authority, how it's limited, actually more importantly, why it's limited and then how it is limited. Um, let's talk about first about Jesus and his authority. This is, um, we have set before us this. Jesus is an absolute totalitarian. Jesus is an absolute, without question, totalitarian. He demands complete and total authority over your life. That's actually the, the message of uh, Psalm 2. Part of the message of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted uh, psalms in the New Testament. Originally, it was a coronation song. They would sing this on the day that a new king in Judah, descendant of David, would be crowned. They'd place the crown on his head and they would sing this celebratory song and they would sing it about the special relationship between God and one of David's descendants, the king. The king of Israel, the king of Judah, is God's adopted son. And, and, and And he's God's anointed king. Now, its most literal fulfillment, though, in the New Testament, comes uh, before King David's greatest son, Jesus Christ. He's not God's son by adoption. He's not been adopted like David's son by God. He is God's son by nature. He is the son of God. And if you aim to plot against Him, the text says, you will face the wrath of God. You will, you will face the Son's pottery-smashing rod of iron. Serve Him, the counsel is verse 11. Serve Him with fear. Celebrate His rule. Kiss Him. Give Him the honor that He is due. Otherwise, you place your faith, yourself in great danger. All, everyone in the whole world, you who think you have any sort of power and authority, oh, be careful. Be careful before whom you speak. This is God's Son. Pay Him the homage that is due Him. Most of this is uh, um, negative. It's aimed at those who are are itching to rebel. But look here at verse, verse 12. Just the last line, it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Oh, There's there's peace to be had, there's satisfaction, there's fulfillment to be had. There is blessing for those who take refuge in the all-surpassing authority of Jesus Christ. Notice the extent here of His authority. It extends to all the nations. I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth will be your possession. Uh, It extends as far as you can see or travel or go. There's extent here in Psalm 2. When we get to the Gospels, when we read about Jesus in the Gospels, we find that His authority is not just wide, we find that it is deep. Think of how deeply Jesus' authority in the Gospels extends into people, into their minds and hearts. He commands people what to do. He commands people how to feel, what to value, where to go, what to believe. In fact, He has so much authority, He commands people to do things that are impossible for them to do. Doesn't He do that? He commanded a a grieving mother not to cry. He told a little girl who was lying in bed dead to get up. He commanded a lame man to stand. You have to have authority over a lot, over more than just people, in order to command them to do the impossible. What we read in in the Gospels is, Jesus' authority is so all-surpassing that he commands the impossible. Actually, he creates what he commands by his command. Jesus is not, in the Gospels, a politician who goes around saying things, hoping they are true or hoping they become true. When he speaks, it happens. He says to a little girl, get up. A dead little girl, get up. And she gets up. Because by his command, he creates what he commands. Jesus has all surpassing authority. I wonder what impossible things Jesus is commanding you to do. Jesus uh, presumes to reorder completely the lives of his followers. He tells them to leave their jobs, to sell their possessions, to love him more than their parents and children. He commands you that what you, when you, what, what you really want to do when the, when the overall the, the dominating desire of your heart is to engage in lust and sexual fantasy, Jesus has the authority to command you to fight it so much it's like cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye. How much authority does Jesus have? He is an absolute totalitarian. Don't, don't be deceived. See, It doesn't look like he has all authority right now. Uh, The Bible acknowledges this. We don't see all things in subjection to him. But the world is on a very short leash. And someday it's going to snap back into position. And Jesus' supremacy will be seen, acknowledged, and celebrated by everyone. This is not the Jesus that most people know It's not the Jesus that most people lay claim to knowing. Um, I heard a news story recently that reflects a very common way that people think about Jesus. Uh, It comes from Iceland. It comes from the official Church of Iceland. Uh, The church and recently announced that all ministers in Iceland will be required to perform same-sex marriages. And the reason, the presiding bishop said that the church is choosing to do what Jesus did and welcome all people without regard for who they are or what they have done or what positions that they hold. Um, Jesus did indeed welcome all people. That is absolutely true. He welcomed all people to come, but he is a demanding master. You can come, you can come, but be prepared. He will turn your life upside down. Now, I have a suspicion what some of you are thinking right now. If you, if, you, if you probe this, some of you are, whether you're a Christian or not, some of you are thinking about, the reason that I have a suspicion about what you're thinking is because this is what I think when I think about Jesus' authority. This level of authority is frightening. Maybe you'd use the word, it's, it's horrifying. horrifying. Is there anybody besides you who should be able to make a claim on your life like this? Who, who can demand this level of allegiance, this level of controlling influence? Maybe you should think, I'm the only one who should have this level of control. What would you do if you went to work tomorrow and your boss sat you down and said, hey, I want everybody to know here that unless you love me more than you love your family, you're not worthy to work here. What would you say tomorrow if that's what your boss said to you? I tried it in staff meeting this week. It didn't go very well. It just didn't, didn't work. Who, who has the right to demand that level of control? If you're thinking that way, um, I want to suggest to you that you may be reflecting the thought process of, of, a, of most human beings in this world, human beings that are, live in this world alienated from the God who created us. This is our natural condition. uh, uh, This resistance to his authority, it's endemic. It's what we do. The more the person, uh, the more authority that the person claims, the greater our resistance is to it. You want to tell me what to do? And what to feel, and what to love, and what to value. And you want to claim authority over absolutely everything that is true about my life, everything I own, every relationship I have, what I do with my free time, what I think in my mind when I don't have any other responsibilities. You want to claim to have that authority in my life? Uh Is that that a step too far? Is it too oppressive? Actually, I, I think that... Is, is a hopeful authority. Ray Ortland writes about this. He, 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 uh, in an article he wrote about what it means to accept Jesus, this is what he said. You and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multidivided. It's like we have a boardroom in every, uh, every heart. Uh, 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 let me start again. Our hearts are multidivided. It's like we have a boardroom in every heart. Imagine a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a whiteboard. A committee sits around the table in your heart. There is the social self and the private self and the work self and the sexual self and the recreational self and the religious self and others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities, but the truth is that we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. Where do all these committee members come from in your mind? Where do they come from? What you read, what you hear, what you watch how other people treat you, your dreams, your disappointments, your culture, television commercials, your relationships. You're tempted to think that in your life that you function as an independent operator and that Jesus comes with this great claim of authority and, and there's going to be war between the two of you. But you're, you're not an immigrated, you're not as independent as you think you are. The level of Jesus, the authority that Jesus demands is frightening, but I also want you to know this morning that there is no one who is worth giving this level of authority to like Jesus. He is an absolute totalitarian who loves you more than anyone else. In fact, there is no one more committed to your good, your blessing, your benefit than Jesus. In fact, he's so committed to it that he died for you. This is why his authority is actually good news. No one has given as much that you might have life, real life. That's what Jesus said in John 10. I have come that they might have life. I'm the good shepherd. I lay my, down, my life down for my sheep. Think about this with me in terms of, of Psalm 2. Jesus came and he entered a world that was in rebellion against God. And when he came, it would have been right and proper for him to come with a rod of iron and smash rebels like you and I to pieces like pottery. But instead, Jesus himself was the one smashed. Jesus was the one who was broken with a rod of iron on the cross when he died for you. The clarion call of Jesus, This is his chief demand, is that you come to him for refuge, that you come to him for forgiveness. His authority would be oppressive were it not so clearly suffused with his love. Listen again how Ray Ortland continues. He's talking about people who are divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree, by which I mean he's talking about people. He says... That kind of person can accept Jesus in two ways. One is to invite him into the committee to give him a vote too. But then he becomes just one more complication. The other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, My life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them, I hand myself over to you. I am your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me. Accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus, he says. It is also subtracting the idols. That's why this claim is such good news. It's good news that Jesus comes as an absolute totalitarian because there is no one worthy of your trust like he is. There is no one who is able to command your life with such grace, skill and wisdom as Jesus Christ not even not even especially you there's no limit to his authority now let's move on and let's talk about the authority that Jesus gives so if this is the authority that he has what sort of authority does he give again a little bit of review from last week All authority that any human being rightly wields is delegated authority from God. Whether we're talking about the state or in a family or in a church, it's all delegated authority. That in itself is a limiting factor. That's why we're talking about authority under this heading, the authority Jesus gives. I read Hebrews 13, 17 a few minutes ago. Jesus can command you to submit to the elders in a church the elders, though, do not have the authority to command you to submit to them. Because it's delegated authority. It's delegated authority and it's limited in its scope. It's limited in its breadth. Jesus has all authority. The authority He gives to others is limited to certain domains. No elder or church has the right to go beyond what Jesus has said because it is His authority. So our responsibility is to proclaim and explain what He has said. Has Jesus spoken about where and when you can go on vacation? Not in His book. So no elder or church can tell you where you can or cannot go on vacation. Does, does, the, does Jesus speak directly and specifically about how you should educate your children? There are principles, there's values set down, but there's no specific requirements about where you must educate your children. Any commands from Jesus about how much you can spend on your house? No. What sort of car you can drive? No. Your clothing? Well, he says to be modest. That's about what he says. Dress modestly. But beyond that? N- no. We have the right to proclaim and explain what he has said. Now, let me think for just a minute with you about um, the relationship, these two entities that exist in the Bible. There's Jesus' church, and then there are these people who function like shepherds in the church, elders, overseers. We think that the highest authority in, a, in the church, in any local congregation, is the congregation itself. That's a Baptist distinctive. We are uh, happy Baptists. Um, it makes us different. That makes us different than Presbyterians and Methodists and Catholics and Lutherans. Um, I can make a case for it, but well, next week we're going to talk about Matthew 18. When there's a problem going on with someone in the church, who is the highest authority that, the, the, that we go to? It is the church. The church has the highest authority. But then there are in the Bible these people that are under shepherds in the church. Shepherds under Jesus. And these elders have authority. They have authority that's been delegated to them by two people, two entities. Jesus has delegated authority to them. Jesus has delegated authority to them to teach his word. But the elders also have authority that's been delegated to them by the congregation uh, to do certain things, to do certain administrative tasks, focused congregational work. Our, Our Constitution actually delineates this. What do the elders do? What does the church do? We try to hold these delegated responsibilities in their proper tension. We, we're a church. We're not a cult in trying to recognize these limits of authority. Now let's be more systematic and more uh, uh, specific if we can. I want to talk about the limits of a church's authority, the last thing we're going to talk about. And I want to talk about specifically about why a church's authority is limited and then how it is limited, why it's limited and how it's limited. First, the why. Why is the church's authority limited? It's limited due to the nature of the work that we do as followers of Jesus Christ. It's limited by the nature of the work we do as followers of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Matthew 20, Matthew twenty twenty five. Jesus is talking to his disciples about leadership and he said this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is contrasting two different types of authority. There is a sort of lording authority. It is outside-in, top-down, controlling authority, and it has uh, has a place. A very important place. This is the authority that the the state has. It's stop sign authority. When I come up to a stop sign, it doesn't matter whether I respect the stop sign or even what condition the stop sign is in. I am responsible because it's lording it over me. My responsibility is to stop at the stop sign. Not roll through the stop sign. I see some of you. I mean stop at the stop sign. Right? Right? And the state has the power to enforce it. They can give me tickets. Uh, they, can, they can take my license away. If I refuse to abide, they can put me in jail. This is top-down, lording authority. And it has its usefulness. It's good. I'm grateful for this type of authority. But that's not the type of authority that is to function in the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we believe that the work that God does in a person's life through Jesus is from the inside out, not the outside in. Not the top down, but the inside out. And that changes the nature of how we relate to one another. There's a lot of places in the Bible where we could go to talk about this. But I just want you to turn, we're going to look for one example to Romans chapter 8. Flip with me over to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read a lot of verses from Romans 8, and I feel about I'm going to skip a lot of wonderful things. But what I want you to see as I read these first uh, 12 verses or so of Romans chapter 8, is what sort of work God does in people's lives. How does He do it? He does it by His Spirit from the inside out, not from the outside in. There's state authority. Here's God's work, Spirit work, inside out work. All right, look at Romans 8, verse 1. Oh, there's so many things here that we're going to skip over that it would be good to look at. Someday we will, Lord willing. Therefore, Romans 8, 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering, and so He condemns sin in the flesh. We sang that song this morning, not in me. There's no rules that I can follow. There's no truth I can recite. There's no, no actions that I can do, no clothes that I can put on that will make me righteous. There's no way to impose that from the outside in on me. Jesus Christ, though, has come to be my righteousness. Verse 4, the, He came He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There it is, we live by the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. It's the Spirit in you the Spirit in you. Now, because we are proclaimers of the gospel and those who work in the realm of the Spirit, we, our authority comes through the gospel and the power of the Spirit. We don't do outside-in work. We appeal to the gospel from the inside out by the Spirit. Now, how does that work? Let me illustrate this in a few ways. Right There is a command in the Bible, Hebrews 10.25, it says, You must come to church. We read it this morning in our church covenant. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. You must attend services. The Bible does not authorize, though, the elders to go to people's houses and drag them from their beds and force them into the pews. Okay, That's law work. Um Instead, we appeal to people through the gospel, by the Spirit. We say, sister, oh sister, the meeting of this church is where we celebrate and reflect on the good work that Jesus has done for us. Won't you come and join us? We say that and we trust that the Spirit is working. Or if a man in our church leaves his wife... We don't go to where he's living with a shotgun and threaten him if he will not return. Some of you want that ministry. I know. You're hoping. It's not what we do. We don't have that authority. Instead, we have the authority of counsel, not the authority of command. And we go to that man and we say, Oh, brother, Jesus Christ died for his bride, the church, and he would never abandon her. Will you not, like our great Savior, will you not remain faithful to your wife, we say that and we trust the Spirit to do His transforming work. Have you ever seen a, a picture of children wearing their Getting Along t-shirt? You've been on Pinterest. You've seen this somewhere, I'm sure, right? Okay, Go and buy yourself an extra 2XL white t-shirt, spray paint on it. This is, my, this is our Getting Along t-shirt. And when your little children fight, put both of them in it, right? Okay, Put one arm out so the other side. They stand there like this and they're Getting Along t shirt. All right, this is, this is, what's that? Law work, isn't it? Outside in work. It's outside in pressure. Sometimes it's a necessary part of parenting. In fact, often it is, right? When your little children are fighting and then you want them to be reconciled with each other, you say to them, say you're sorry. And what do they say? Sorry, right? Then you say, no, say it nicely. Sorry. No, I said nicely. Sorry. It improves a little bit. Smile. Sorry. Right. Okay. You just you're you're doing outside in. Sometimes that's parenting work. Is that way? Um, it's not all that it is. You, you want to do heart work as as a parent. But the so the church doesn't have getting along T-shirts. Okay. We don't have any in store for the next congregational meeting. Okay. We don't have any of those. Instead, what do we say? We say, oh, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven us. And it, since He has forgiven us so much, how can we not forgive one another? And we trust the Spirit to do His transforming work. Does that feel powerless to you? Are, are you discouraged that we don't use shotguns or threats or cages Or or shame people to getting uh, them to follow Jesus? Doesn't that seem... uh, Here we go. Here's a good question. It answers himself. Here's the question. Doesn't it seem ineffective to point people to Jesus and trust the Spirit to work? (laughs) By asking that question, you you reveal the answer. What do we do if people don't respond to the appeals that we make? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next week. The Gospel is outside... It's inside out work. It's empowered by the church and the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We work that way too. This is why the authority of the church is limited. It's limited in its physical powers. No shotguns, no t-shirts, no dragging people by the hair, no guilt trips, no shame, no lectures, no harangues. Actually our authority is only limited by the Holy Spirit. How limited is that? Hmm. Now, That's the why. It's limited by the nature of our work because we are gospel-believing and proclaiming people. We are Holy Spirit-trusting people. So our authority is limited in that way. Now let's talk about how it's limited. We already talked about one of the ways that it's limited. It's limited, first of all, in its scope. It's limited in its scope. It's breath, it's determined by Jesus. We speak for Jesus, the things that Jesus has said. It's delegated authority, we go as far as He has spoken. We talked about that a minute ago. But the authority that the church exercises is also limited by conscience. Conscience. The church does not have the authority to command you to violate your conscience. Right now there's a lot of court cases having to do with whether or not the government can force you to violate your conscience. We believe that the church doesn't have the authority to have you violate your conscience either. A few minutes ago, Carol read quite well for us 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Remember, 1 Corinthians 8 is about conscience in the church. There were believers in the church in Corinth who had different minds when it comes to eating meat. Meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Some people ate it. They didn't care. It was fine. A hamburger a hamburger. Bring it on. Some people didn't. Their conscience wouldn't allow them to eat it. We talked about this when we, when we read through the book of Acts. It probably has to do with some of the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. Uh, people, uh, Paul told the meat eaters that they were to respect the non-meat eaters. That there be respect and not force them to eat meat. And Paul told... The non-meat eaters that they were not to judge the meat eaters. So there's supposed to be mutual respect, no forcing, no judgment between the two. And, and, and you can't force people to violate their conscience. Now, we have areas of conscience that separate us today, don't we? We don't think about this too often. Some of you have strict conscious convictions, conscience convictions about what to wear to church. Some of you have uh, uh strict convictions about dancing or drinking alcohol or playing cards or school choices or movies watching movies. A church does not have the right to command you to violate your conscience. We don't have the right to mandate that you drink alcohol or dance or send your kids to public school or Christian school or play cards or anything. We don't have the, the we do not have the authority to command you to violate your conscience. Now, the reason I explain that is it touches on what we do as a church when we gather together. I said this last week. You do not have a choice about whether or not you attend public meetings of the church. It is a command from God. Jesus commands you to come to church. But those who plan it must be very careful that while you're here under Jesus' command, we not force you to violate your conscience while you're here. That's why we don't have dance-offs as part of our service, right? Um, uh, that's why, actually, when we meet, we do as much as possible. We sit close to what the Bible says about worship. That's why our church service is our church. We sing, we read the Bible, we pray, we give, we take the Lord's, take the Lord's Supper, we baptize. Those are the commands. You, you may have convictions related to 10,000 other things and a church with limited authority won't stray into those areas. We don't have the authority to vo- force you to violate your conscience. Uh, there's a scene. I imagine most of you have seen this in The Wizard of Oz. There's a scene towards the end. Uh, I, I think I talked about this a few months ago. I, I can't remember. Um, There's a scene where uh, Dorothy and and the Tin Man and the Lion and and the Scarecrow and Toto go back into the chamber of the great and powerful Oz. They've already been there before. They were commanded by the great and powerful Oz to go get the uh, the witch's broom, and they brought the witch's broom back, and uh, they have presented, and they want the great and powerful Oz to fulfill his word and to give them uh, the things that they require. And there before them is the hologram of the great and powerful Oz. It's big, it's green, it's creepy. It's loud. And, and they're, they're uh, uh, cowering before it. And, and while, while they're cowering before the great and powerful Oz, Toto, of course, goes over and finds that pasty little wrinkled old man. Right? Behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. What they find out is that that pasty, wrinkled, old, little, cute man is the actual Wizard of Oz. The guy up there, he's he's just an illusion. The analogy is not perfect, okay? It's It's not perfect. But some churches, some pastors present themselves as the great and powerful Oz. It happens. The real head of the church is he's behind the curtain. He's just unimpressive Jesus. But the opposite is true. We are the pasty, weak, frail men. Jesus is the king. Not terrible, but indisputably great. And it is his greatness and his authority that proscribes the authority of his church. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you through Jesus Christ, our great king. He who has all authority. Lord, uh, we sang this morning, creation longs for his return when Jesus Christ will rule the earth. And uh, we do look forward to and long for that day when Jesus' authority is evident to all. The world will be a wonderful place. It, it It will work in perfect harmony. There will be balance and beauty and goodness everywhere that we see. There will not be poverty and abuse and faithlessness. Oh, we pray together because we long for that day that Jesus comes back and his authority is clear for all to see. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray, we humbly ask you that you would enable us to use the authority that you have given us well, that we would be careful of the boundaries, that, that we would... Um, together celebrate your supremacy over us all and that we would grant to one another the freedom that you have given us. You who are our great savior, the one who is our good shepherd. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying your life down for us that we might have full lives. Oh, how thankful we are. Guard us, guide us, Protect us from our foolishness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.